Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond, and welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus outbreak. Today, I'm in conversation with my colleagues, Adam Kankren, who co-writes Politico Pulse, our morning health newsletter, with me, and Jeremy Siegel, who hosts our terrific daily dispatch podcast. We're collectively looking at President Trump's decision to make Vice President Mike Pence the leader of the White House's coronavirus task force, and what that decision has meant for the past six months of the administration's response to the coronavirus pandemic. Here's our conversation. I want you guys to both imagine that it's like two years ago. So, Dan, um, your your hair hasn't reached its full potential yet. You haven't gone through this ridiculous decision to get it cut recently. Oh, oh Jeremy. Adam, you're still able to see your uh, best, best bud, Dan, in the office. High five each other <laughs> after you finish writing your newsletter together. And um, y- you get visited by this mysterious time traveler. Um, he, he seems pretty cool. Seems like a trustworthy dude. Pretty well-spoken. Let, let's let's call him Jeremy. Um, this time traveler, this Jeremy guy, he, he says, Dan, Adam, two years from now, you're going to be writing a story that begins with a dramatic retelling of Mike Pence's decision on whether or not to close cruise ships in the U.S., what do you think when when this guy tells you that? <laughs> if he if he's not in a in a shiny silver onesie, then I'm not believing he's from the future. <laughs> yeah, is there a hot tub or DeLorean involved uh, in Jeremy's presentation? <laughs> See, I, I think the takeaway here is we'd be very very skeptical, but we'd also want to know a lot more <laughs> about about Jeremy and the news that he's bringing. <laughs> All right, let's get to some real questions here. Um, At their convention this week, Republicans have portrayed the pandemic as a crisis of the past. It was awful, but presidential leadership came swiftly and effectively with an extraordinary rescue for health and safety to successfully fight the COVID virus. Are we really through the worst of this pandemic, though? I mean, is this a crisis of the past? Is there any truth to the claims we've been hearing at the convention this week? Here's the optimistic take. We're starting to get treatments and therapies that could work to curb coronavirus. The number of cases is starting to fall again. There might be some evidence of immunity in some Americans. So this is not the low point. Things have gotten better in recent weeks. But this is still a pretty bad point. There were more than 1,000 deaths from COVID-19 on Tuesday. There were more than 5,000 deaths of Americans from COVID across the past week. There are millions of Americans who have been infected by this disease. We still don't know the long-term implications. And there are still big parts of this country that haven't seen a major surge in infections. And what that means is that White House officials are worried that there are still spikes on the horizon big possible outbreaks that could happen, say, in the Midwest. So we are by no means through this virus. And if anything, we're we're still in the opening chapters of what could be a pretty long book about how America is responding to this. And and to Dan's point, I think 
from the beginning, this has been a problem. The fallacy has been that there is going to be a tidy beginning, middle, and then end to this crisis. And I think what we're finding over the last six months is that it's really just a little bit circular in the middle. So yes, you have the crisis in the Northeast, right? That doesn't mean you're halfway through it because now we have crisis and outbreaks in the South and the West. And when that abates, that doesn't mean we're through it. You have a virus that continues to circulate uncontrolled throughout the nation. And we're going to keep having these flare-ups until we do actually get to the end of a vaccine or, or some other way to, to sufficiently snuff out the virus. Yeah, the coronavirus remains undefeated. So last night, one of the biggest speakers at the convention was Vice President Mike Pence. In a news story, you both dug into how Pence has been at the center of the Trump administration's response to coronavirus as the head of the coronavirus task force since February. I want to go back to the beginning of his tenure at the head of the task force. Adam, how did Mike Pence even get the job of task force leader in the first place? Well, the decision kind of grew out of unhappiness with the first leader of the coronavirus task force, which was Health Secretary Alex Azar. He had been at the helm for the first 29 days of the coronavirus response. And during that period, really what it was marked by was just constant infighting. And it just wasn't going well. And at some point, uh, the president made this decision that, you know, one, there needed to be somebody who could kind of bring order to the task force that everybody would listen to, that had the kind of gravitas that was needed to run this kind of crisis response. And also, it needed to be somebody that he could trust and that he felt would be, you know, loyal and keep him uh, in the loop. And, and that ended up being Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, one, because just, you know, he was he was in the building. He's in the White House. It gives you a White House presence. And secondly, because if there's anything that we've found out about Mike Pence over the past three and a half years is that he at no point will allow there to be any kind of distance between him and and Trump. And so that kind of response, for better or worse, was always going to be tightly controlled to whatever Trump was saying at the time, to whatever his view of the crisis was going to be. There was going to be no conflict between those two. So Pence takes over in February. He's the head of the coronavirus task force. What does he do? Well, at first, Vice President Pence didn't do much. His staff, the vice president, they were not involved in the early ramp up on coronavirus. So they needed time to get up to speed. There was a freeze on some of the initiatives that were underway. Media appearances by some of the task force members, including Tony Fauci, were put on hold there was this this period of uncertainty, and that was amplified by Pence and his office themselves. They were very careful not to step on Alex Azar, the predecessor leader of the task force. Uh, some of the communication that came out was unclear, even to members of the task force who was in charge. So there was a period, as, as one person put it, of just spinning their wheels, trying to figure out what to do next. And one of the decisions that had been tabled that public health experts believed was a no-brainer was shutting down the cruise industry. At that point, by the end of February, it was clear. The cruise industry, cruise ships, were spreading coronavirus. There had been major outbreaks 
aboard several ships. Americans had gotten sick. The U.S. government was dealing with major logistical headaches and trying to evacuate those Americans. Public health experts said, you know, there's nothing more we need to see here. We need to shut down this industry. And they told the vice president that right away. It took Vice President Pence two weeks to get to the point where he wanted to sign off on this. And in the intervening weeks, he was consulting with not just health experts, but economic experts. He nudged by President Trump. He went down to Florida and met with the cruise ship industry. Now, those are arguably important steps when thinking about a major decision. But the problem was the U.S. was in a race against time. Every hour, every day, the virus was spreading and moving quickly was imperative to shutting down potential risks to America. So by the time the cruise ship industry itself was shut down, officials told us this was too late. It it mattered a lot less in the middle of March than it did at the end of February. But Adam, you spoke to some officials, including Democrats, who thought that Pence was a real asset as the Trump administration was, I mean, struggling to get a handle on the pandemic at this time. Is there an argument to be made that Pence was the right guy for the right time? Well, first, I think it's important to put that in context. So in talking to especially state leaders, governors, both Democratic and Republican, there is, yes, a sense that uh, Mike Pence has been maybe the greatest asset for them in the administration in the White House. But the reason for that is not because he came in and did such a world-beating job. The reason for that is that he simply was able to manage things better and interact with, with state leaders better than the president. So if you remember, there was just open public sparring between Trump and especially a lot of blue state governors who would come out and say they needed more tests, they needed access to more ventilators, they were running low on supplies. And Trump obviously would not react well to that criticism. Pence, on the other hand, was able to kind of facilitate this back and forth to act as kind of a back channel, a conduit into an otherwise vindictive White House for these state leaders. And so there was a feeling that even if he couldn't accomplish much, even if the response felt like it was going sideways from time to time, that they always had somebody who would at least get on the phone and hear them out. All that being said, there's a sense that, yes, there could have been much worse picks to run the response. It could have been Trump himself, in which case, you know, the response likely would have been all over the place. It could have continued to be the health secretary, in which case that infighting that we saw early on likely would have continued. But the same attributes that make Mike Pence a good politician, uh, somebody that governors like as a person, were the same reasons why Officials that we talked to felt like he was a bad fit for this leadership position, something that requires you to make quick, decisive decisions. In in this case, instead, what ended up happening is Pence wanted to hear from everybody. He wanted to really get a range of opinions. He wanted to take time to make the decisions. And that may be great when you're trying to just make sure everybody gets along. But when you need to make decisions in a crisis moment, that's not always the greatest attribute. Dan, has the way he's handled this evolved at all over the past six months? Some of what we saw in the early days of Mike Pence needing to seek consensus, of taking the pulse of the room rather than making quick decisions, that's continued. That, that, that is his style. 
And his team has learned more. They've been thrown into the deep end. They've had their licks on trying to deal with this problem that they understand coronavirus significantly better. So I think the response has evolved in that the team knows more what it's doing now. But there were a lot of missed opportunities along the way. There was real fumbling of the public health message around masks. Vice President Pence said in February and in March, not all Americans needed to wear masks. They, they wouldn't necessarily be helpful. The vice president wasn't the only person saying that at the time. Tony Fauci, the infectious disease expert, uh, Surgeon General Jerome Adams, other doctors were saying in public and in private that masks were not that essential and we needed to prioritize them for healthcare workers. So Pence was not alone, but it took Pence a really long time to come around on this message. He famously visited Mayo Clinic and flouted the hospital's policies on wearing masks while on campus. He met with patients and doctors without wearing a mask. That became a big issue. He appeared in other high-profile events not wearing a mask. He's been really inconsistent on this, and that's helped send the signal to a lot of Americans, particularly Republicans, that maybe masks aren't that important when so many public health experts have insisted that they are. I also think that the messaging from Pence's team has been at times premature. Back in June, Pence's office worked with the Wall Street Journal to write an op-ed that essentially took a victory lap on where the U.S. was with coronavirus. The vice president proclaimed that there, there was no coronavirus second wave, that the media was fear-mongering about the state of the pandemic. Within days of that op-ed, the number of cases shot up around the country, particularly in the South, and Vice President Pence had to do a, a quick walk back of the assertions he made. I think some of that, I guess you could call it aspirational messaging, continued in the vice president's speech to the convention on Wednesday night. To some extent, it was a far more empathetic speech about the sheer cost of the coronavirus, the impact on average Americans, the pain that they are feeling, than the triumphalism that we heard from officials like economic advisor Larry Kudlow, who earlier this week suggested that the coronavirus threat was largely a thing of the past. As our editor, Joanne Kennan, put it, the fact that Pence was talking about the coronavirus in the present tense, that alone was a bit of news. But the vice president still planted a stake in the ground by suggesting that a vaccine, it's on track for the end of the year, he said, uh, talking about the miracles that are still to come in the coronavirus fight. He said a few other things that are keeping fact checkers busy. And I, I think this was not a glass half full approach to coronavirus. This was the glass totally full. This is the most optimistic spin on where things currently are. So it's now been half a year since Pence took over the coronavirus response. About 180,000 Americans have died from COVID at this point. Millions more have been affected. Adam, has Pence done a good job leading the country's response in the White House to this crisis? I think the numbers that you just referenced tell the story. Uh, I, I think there's going to be a lot of second guessing about you know, who and what decisions should have been made and how they should have been made and whether they should have been made differently or faster. The current former officials we spoke to, and it was 21 for this story, they came to the conclusion that as a default option, Pence was the one, I think, if you looked around the White House, you would choose. Uh, again, he had the leadership capabilities. He's well-liked. He's respected. He had the ear of the president. 
um, and a feeling that, look, if anybody was going to be able to run this thing with some sort of organization and some sort of capability, that it would be Pence. On the other hand, I mean, we continue to be in in this crisis situation. And, you know, all of the optimism in the world that we've seen from Pence and from the White House really doesn't translate on the ground when we remain in a deep economic recession and a deep public health crisis. Adam, where does this leave Mike Pence himself? I mean, there's been speculation all week about how he might run for president in 2024. Do you think these past six months help him or hurt him? Well, it's certainly been significant. I mean, this is the biggest job that Pence has taken. It's the biggest job of his political life, and it's the highest stakes. And how he's run this, I mean, overall, especially if there is a reckoning of a Democrat, you know, if if Joe Biden wins election in November, this is going to be something that is hung around the neck of both Trump and Pence and really anybody who is involved in this response that, you know, on their watch, over 180,000 Americans died from COVID-19. The one thing that makes me hesitate, that makes me think that this will not be all bad for him in the long run, is the outsized presence of Donald Trump. Uh, One of the things that we've seen throughout the last three and a half years is that Trump is by choice the top spokesperson. He's always going to be the one out front. He's always going to be the one who is the face of anything, uh, whether it's the economy or coronavirus or any other issue, Obamacare, any other issue that we've seen over the past you know, three or four years. So in that way, Pence is, is seen by, by a lot of officials as you know, the guy who has had to manage through it all. He's doing his best. And really, you, know, you can't blame him because look at the hand he was dealt. So come 2024, that I think is going to be the kind of parameters of the, of the debate. How much blame do you heap on Pence versus kind of giving him a pass because of all of the other difficulties that he was facing in dealing with Trump in, you know, kind of steering a response that for several months, you know, the president himself was kind of skeptical, needed to have a lot of energy going into it. Adam, I don't know if you found this at all, but in in the people that I talked to, there was a lot of willingness to acknowledge the president's mistakes and his wrong claims on coronavirus. People generally like Pence and found ways to avoid criticizing him, even as they criticize like the people around him or the policies he put in place. It's a different way of thinking and talking about Pence than thinking and talking about Trump, even in the White House. I, I think that's true. And I think, you know, looking forward again, you know, three or four years, the battle is going to be one of perception. It's going to be, did Pence do as best as he could under extremely difficult situations? In which case, you know, you can look at back at these six months and, and it might actually help his candidacy, it might help his perception as a leader and somebody who is able to be a steady hand at a moment of a lot of uncertainty. The counter to that, though, is the argument that Pence essentially just sanitized Trump's message. When Trump is out there blaming China and calling it the China virus and saying, don't call these governors and, you know, we'll let them deal with it. They're on their own. Pence is not breaking from that approach at all. He's not saying, well, I disagree with that. In, in fact, in our reporting going back you know, a few years now, I don't think we've ever found any instance, public or private, where Pence has expressed any disagreement with the president or said he would even do things a different way. So in a sense, you know, even if his style is different, even if his communication is a little bit more diplomatic, 
At the same time, he's still endorsing, he's still backing a Trump-led approach to this virus. All right, that is our show for this week. I'm Dan Diamond, and my thanks to colleagues Adam Kankerin and Jeremy Siegel for joining me on this episode. Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. Subscribe to Politico Pulse Check on your favorite podcast app. All you have to do is search for Politico Pulse Check. And once there, you can help us by leaving a rating or review. Every time you do that, that helps new listeners find the show. You can follow Politico's coverage of the coronavirus outbreak in our two daily newsletters, the Politico Nightly Newsletter every evening and Politico Pulse, which I co-author with Adam every morning. You can sign up at politico.com slash newsletters. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, and we'll be back again with you next week.